Sister Jill Goulding, you are a professor of systematic theology in Regis College in Toronto and you are here in Ireland on a visit but you're also based in Cambridge where you're doing some work as well. Talking to me today about synodality, the synod, because you were very involved in that as a theologian. So can you tell me about your role and then we'll talk a bit about the synod as it's taking place today. But your role first of all in the synod and the whole synodal process that Pope Francis began. Thank you very much. My role started in April 2021 when Cardinal Grech appointed me to the Theological Commission. And we began our work really at that time. That we worked away on the preparatory document, the Vadi Mecum that accompanied that. You were involved in the writing of that, am I right? Yes. And then it moved to, we had a series of meetings in Rome back and forth, but then there was the gathering at Frascati in Italy where we came together to write the document for the continental stage, which was based on all the returns from around the world. And just to mention one or two of those, 112 Episcopal conferences replied out of 114. And I was so struck, for example, that the Ukrainian church sent in a return in all their difficulties. Mm. Sudan and South Sudan also, with a little sort of apology that they couldn't get to some parts of their country. And how could they? They were at war. So the sense that the church in its way makes you proud of being part of the church, had come together to try and respond. And it was the biggest, if you like, global consultation of Catholics, right down to every individual Catholic that wanted to participate, looking at what maybe gave them joy in their church and also what disturbed them and what they might see a need for change. I think that's true, but it was the process that I think people found often very novel because they came together to reflect on Scripture and then to have a sense of, in a prayerful way, listening to one another, what was the Holy Spirit saying within them? So it was very clear, and again, we see today with the Synodal Assembly in Rome, Pope Francis has been emphasizing that it's the Holy Spirit that is the protagonist here. In other words, we're all endeavoring to be open to what is the Spirit saying within us and within other people too. And that's very different from coming with an agenda that you want to push. And so that has to be something that was learned in the local groups. But the returns on that were such that people were saying they were so overjoyed that the church actually wanted to listen to them, that the church was emphasizing that we are all members of the people of God, and that the church thought that they were also people whom the Holy Spirit could speak through. And that was very powerful for people in different parts of the world. And what emerged from those consultations were a number of themes that we tried to bring into that writing of the document for the continental stage. One of these, which would be probably of real interest to your listeners, was of course the place of women. That came up in every report across the world. And But it was different in different places. I mean, clearly there was in North America and parts of Europe, there was raised the question about a women's or But in the majority of the world, really, the question was wanting to hear women's voices. And it could be in some countries as basic as saying we need education for women in order that they can give voice to what they have a sense of themselves. 
So you've got a spectrum there within which we needed to raise these points in that document and not say any continent had the sort of the answer to this, but to say, look, this is what's coming from the universal church and how do we move forward together? So I think that that was really important and we tried to be faithful to that. Other themes? Other themes would be, for example, one very important one, I think, again raised across the board was that of formation. And this was both formation in the synodal process, formation in discernment, but also wider faith formation. Would you just describe that for people? Because it is an in-house church word. Ordinary people don't say, I'm getting formed today. So will you explain that for people? Exactly. The formation really is looking at how do we help, for example, in the synodal process, how do we help people to understand and practice this process that Pope Francis has said is the way of the church from October 2021 when he opened the process. This is how we should be as church, being open to God, to the working of the Holy Spirit, and being open to one another and the spirit at work within others. So having what he calls conversation in the spirit. It's dialogical in the sense of that it's listening to one another and, as it were, responding at a later stage, but in a prayerful way, a series of prayerful moments such that we hear one another at a deeper level. And the question of discernment is not just making decisions. It involves coming to a decision, but it involves that in terms of a wider listening to people and a sense of where we can come together, where there are clear divergences in things that are being raised up and that we respect that. But where are the convergences as well as where are the dissonances? And can we together walk forward acknowledging these. And Pope Francis isn't afraid of dissonance because he talks about parhesia, that's the word he uses, which is a frank and open, not being afraid to speak truth to power if you have felt that deep within you. Exactly. He is the first Pope in my experience who actually has welcomed, publicly welcomed such differences and to be expressed and also seen these as the potential to be for something greater to emerge. And that's very like, if I may say so, the way in which the society speaks about governance. That, for example, a superior in a Jesuit community and a member of that community can come together, both having prayed about the issue that they want to bring together, and they may come together with very different understandings of use. But as they speak about those together, something else may emerge that is neither one nor the other, but is something that they have a sense that the Spirit is calling them to. And it's that kind of way forward as regards this synodal process and at the wider kind of faith and how to discern that. And the wider kind of formation, faith formation, is really helping people to have a sense that their faith didn't just stop when they left school or when they were confirmed, but that faith develops over a lifetime. And in order to contribute to the faith community, we need to be about trying to be more open to God and to one another. And in that way, we, as St. Paul says, we build up the body and the church is seen as the body of Christ. Another kind of innovative feature of this synodal process 
is also that there is a dimension of ecumenism that he has raised up as important, that we can learn from other churches in dialogue with other churches. In my own experience, I've been on the Theological Commission of the Canadian Council of Churches for a good number of years. I've also been on the executive of the Canadian Council of Churches, all by appointment of the bishops of Canada. And so I've been very involved in what I would call practical ecumenism in that sense. I haven't written specifically in the area of ecumenism in a wide way, although ecumenism has been formed part and parcel sometimes of what I've been writing. Pope Francis has called us to look outside ourselves in the way Vatican II does. I mean, in the document from Vatican II Lumen Gentium, we see clearly stated that sense that the church has a relationship with its members, with other Christian churches, with people who believe in God in different ways, interfaith realities, and indeed with every human person by the very fact that they are human being made in the image of likeness of God. So in a sense, He's calling us back to this understanding and saying that our openness to hearing, to listening to, without being afraid, say a Buddhist, doesn't mean we're going to get converted to Buddhism. But it does mean that it will help us to reflect more deeply on our faith too. And that we can share that depth of expression of faith one with another. So it's a sense, this is how he sees that call to evangelization. It's a sense of sharing what we have. Now, in order to share what we have, we need to know what we have. And that comes back to formation. I think a lot of people would accept there's a huge need for that today, particularly among don't like the word lay, it means non-professional, but let's say not religious people or non-clerical who love their faith, who want to participate and share, but who need some form of training or formation, as you say. Absolutely. I was involved some years ago in a project that came out of Loyola Institute in New Orleans, and it was called Limex, and it was an extension program. And that brought in lay people involved in all sorts of different things. We used to have these courses Sunday afternoons, so in other words, people could come who had families and such like. So, and that was very fruitful for people. And it's not dissimilar process was used as the synodal process. So there are clear examples, past examples of where this way of working does both help to form people and at the same time help us to engage at depth with our faith in a way that involves a kind of communal appreciation. Sometimes we can find ourselves because we feel like isolated perhaps. And I remember being in Ireland when the second major report on the abuse crisis in the church came out. And actually, it was a few days before I gave what was called the Veal Lecture. I held the Veal Chair at Milltown at that time. And my title of my talk was A Church of Passion and Hope. And there was a real sense of heaviness amongst many members of the audience, as it were. But in the questions that followed, they seemed to like what I had to say, but in the questions that followed, because I did actually address, you could not address that reality. One man said to me, you know, I feel in such a difficult place because when I go to work, my fellow workers are saying all this about the church, etc. I can't say anything and I don't know what to do. And I can remember off the top of my head, I was still said again on reflection. I said that the way you live your life, the kindness that you show to others, 
and the desire that you have to practice your faith in that kind of both inward and outward way contributes to the health of the church. I said, the way we all live does that. We can cut ourselves off and say, well, you know, I'm just going to keep my head down and just do what I need to do. But I said, that's not really living my faith. And his response to me, I shall never forget, he said, you have given me hope. I can go home thinking that I can make a difference by the way I live. I just found that really helpful myself because he had understood what I was trying to say. And it goes to show that, again, it's like the syndal process. Why I could say that was because of my conviction, too, that the Holy Spirit was at work in this man. Yeah, and I was just going to say, it just mirrors what you're talking about in a little vignette of what exactly. that synodal process is. Exactly. And he shares from his truth and his parhesia and his desolation, and you can come to some kind of a synthesis. Can we talk about the synod now that's happening at the moment? I know you have been to other synods of bishops. This one, what about the number? the representation of women. Can you give people a sketch of what is going on there? Because I think a lot of people hear about it, but they don't actually fully know what's happening. Yes. Well, it's significantly different from... I was at the 2012 Synod as a so-called theological expert, and there we sat in the Synod Hall, and everybody was arranged in serried ranks. The cardinals were at the front, and then the archbishops, and then the bishops, as it were, on the middle section. Then on the left section where I was, it was the bishops that couldn't fit into the middle they were and then the fraternal delegates which means people from other churches and then the theologians who were arranged in the priest in order of ordination and then all the way back and then there was one little row of sisters half a row actually I think if I remember rightly and at the back behind us very back was the lay people theologian <laughs> so you had were given your seat and woe betide you if you sat in a different one <laughs> So it was very clearly like that. Having said that, because it was on the transmission of new evangelization, the transmission of the Christian faith, a number of bishops that I spoke to during that time said to me that it was the best synod they'd been to and they'd been to a few. So in other words, there's been a process over the years of synods considering their own structure and trying to make it perhaps a better, not just experience, but a better way of being church. And what I found the most helpful in that time were what they called the Chirglia Minores, in other words, the small groups. Because within those small groups, the chair of my small group was Diemut Martin, former Archbishop of Dublin, and the secretary was Archbishop Longley. And certainly Archbishop Martin, he said from the beginning, everyone has the right to speak. So there were no difficulties about that. And um, whenever I pressed the microphone button, he always asked me to speak. So that was, I had the Jesuit general at that time, Father Nicholas in my group, and Cardinal Targley, who characters as we know. Now, that particular emphasis in terms of the small groups is far more apparent now. It's grown over time. And in this synod assembly, they are actually sitting in small groups round tables. So they can't be in that synod hall. They are actually in the Paul VI hall, which is sometimes used for general audience on a Wednesday if it's raining or if it's in the winter or if it's too hot in the summer. So they all sit in very, what looked like to me, the comfortable chairs, which is great because otherwise if they use the chairs for the general audience, they were dreadful. <laughs> so they're sat around and it's a mixture at each table of cardinals, bishops of one form or another, of lay people. There's a facilitator at each table, which comes from the secretariat group. Mm-hmm. 
and there is a secretary and a reporter. And Cardinal Grech named the reporters yesterday. They are bishops of one form or another, or I think some lay people. So they will be the ones who will report back to the secretariat. They're not really having many plenary sessions. They come together in plenary at beginning to pray, and then they have the small group work. But they will be, for example, they're working on a certain section of the Instrumentum Laboris, which is the working document for the assembly. But also, the working document is meant to be taken up by local areas as well around the world. It's not just for the Synod Assembly. And, for example, they finished the first part, which is looking at the foreword, on Saturday. So all that comes from the small groups, there will be a kind of a writing up of that by the Secretariat people. And that will be presented to the assembly at the end of the Saturday session. And then they have Saturday afternoon and Sunday off. So that Instrumentum Laboris, that document, is really the summary of all the material that came in from around the world, themes that emerged. Yes and no. The, The document of the continental stage was more that, flagging up particularly the different themes. When that went back to the continents, they then looked at that in the light of their own document that they'd sent in. And then they wrote another document, which they all the continents did that, that went in. So it's from a combination of the document for the continental stage and the documents from the continents that went back in, that they have drawn what they see as being the important questions. So the document itself, the first part of that, after the forward part A, gives a sense of how they got to this stage. Part B is formed of a whole series of worksheets which looks at communion, participation and mission. And there's about five worksheets for each one with numerous questions. That's what they're working through. And that communion, participation and mission is something you've mentioned during our talk here, even in the formation, like how we work as a universal church, participation, women, people that are on the margins, but also all together how we participate, is that right? Yes. And then the mission is all together creating Church of God that is on the move and implementing what the Spirit wants, is that right? Yes. <laughs> One thing that I think that is interesting, I was speaking on UISG webinar, which is the Union of International General Superiors, because I was asked to talk about my experience of the process there. And the way in which they arranged the three webinars was communion, mission and participation. And I found that quite helpful because in a sense, we're called to that communion. We're called as church that communion for mission. And that's what Pope Francis is very clear about the churches for mission. So this isn't just a meeting for us to look at ourselves, but it's outward facing. And then participation in terms of who is involved And how can, given the mission that we are called to, how can there be more participation? Now, you had raised the point particularly about the reality of numbers of women. Now, we have, I believe, 54 women present. Some of those are delegates. Some of those are people who are in, as it were, the service of the secretariat, so who will be facilitators or very few theologians. So there's a sense in which they are participating in different ways. But it's the first time, I mean, that 54 is about 15% of the whole assembled body. In 2012, there were 34. 
So that it's going, and 34 was many more than they'd had before. So we're moving in the right direction. Because they would have voting rights, most of those women, would they? No, only the delegates have yeah, voting delegates. rights. So, for example, the UISG have five women and two men is the way they chose to do that. The Union of International Superiors General. So it brings together the men and the women. Or the USG used to be the men's, but they've come together in a sense to work with this. There is a sense in which you may recall when Pope Francis said that there would be lay members of the Synod, what was decided was that 150 names would be sought. And so Episcopal conferences around the world gave in certain names. And of those, 75 would be chosen, of whom half had to be women. Right. So that's it's a bit of a quota going on, at least. Yes, yes. One thing that I always emphasize, because again, yesterday, Pope Francis emphasized at the very first session, this is not a parliament. The media has been very focused on voting, which their only sense of voting is parliamentary sort of way. And that's not how this is done. No synod has ever been deliberative. So every synod is consultative. What I mean by that is, even in the past, when it was just the bishops, they're consulted, they make propositions, they vote on their propositions that they want sent to the Holy Father. The Holy Father can disregard all of those because, as I say, it's a consultative body, it's not a deliberative body. Now, it's not saying that a Pope Francis is going to throw out everything they raise up, but it is trying to emphasise, particularly in the face of those who are very concerned about changes in doctrine and of all sorts of things, that this is not a deliberative body. And it's never been seen to be that. So the place of women there, though, I think is very important. And the calibre of women that they have chosen, I think, is very helpful. And that sense of what I feel is very important. As one of the theological commissions said to me one time when we were meeting, and she is actually at the assembly, that there is a way in which we do not wish to be token realities for anybody's cause. So this is a woman from Senegal, and she was one also too who says we are the level of wanting women to actually have an education. So we do need to listen widely. And I think that the presence of women there, in my experience, and my experience also as a theologian, is that women tend to be, this is a sexist remark, I'm afraid, but they tend to have a more overall kind of vision than a polarised vision. I know in academic life sometimes uh, with my male colleagues, there can be a sense of someone's pushing this, someone's pushing that. And I'm saying, well, actually, perhaps there's other possibilities. You know, there's a bigger picture. And I think that's something that very often women bring to a scenario, not least because we have to cope with many, so many different areas of life. And I think that that will be helpful. And so just to sum up now, they're doing that, they're meeting, they get off on a Saturday and Sunday. They're there for how long? Saturday afternoon, Saturday, work Sunday, oh. Saturday morning. Oh. They're there till, it began on the 4th, the formal sessions. They yes. had three days of retreat beforehand, yeah. again setting the reality of a prayerful scenario. Some wonderful talks I tuned in uh, by the former master of the Dominicans, Father oh, yes, Timothy, Timothy Radcliffe. Radcliffe yeah. 
They're on YouTube if anybody's interested. Yes, yeah. exactly. And it finishes on the 29th. There'll be the final Mass, Sunday the 29th. The documents go to Pope Francis for consideration. Yes. And then? That's a very good question. The format of this is different, is novel. In the past, what's happened at the end of a synod is generally, and I think this also is going to be happening because I recall hearing committee being formed. I think Cardinal Grex spoke about that. Normally there is a group writing a kind of synthesis report. That's not the final report, but that is presented also to the synod assembly. But what has happened in the past, after a synodal gathering, there is some kind of apostolic exhortation that Pope Francis, as it were, writes. Now, there is another meeting of this synodal assembly next year. Now, whether all the same people are going to be going or there are going to be different people going, we don't know. But there is a sense in which this is only part of the process and there is another part also before we move into the lifelong process, if you see what I yes, mean. because it's so important and the issues are really big issues at the moment. And I think everybody accepts that if it's going to be really taken seriously, it needs time. And Pope Francis, I think, as you said very well at the start, the spirit, it has to be in tune with the spirit. Exactly. And that takes time. And we need to allow the timing. It's a little like when you're in a group, as many of you will know. If you're in a group and you're trying to share about something, there are those who are very quick to speak and there are those who take more time to speak because that's by their nature how they, as it were, get in touch with their deeper sense of things. That's what they want to share and offer. We need to have the ability to actually wait for all. And I think there's also two cultural realities here. And again, it's that sense of realising part of the greatness, if I would put it in that, that way, or even perhaps I could use the word nobility of our church, is that we are in every culture. You know? So let us pay attention to that. It's another way of also recognising the basic dignity, worth and value of every human person. And that's the baseline for the church. Whatever else, that's our baseline, our foundation to which we can always return. <laughs>